from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together Lord's Day 23. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? That's all of what we profess in the Apostles' Creed. In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you're righteous only by faith? And not that I'm acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the title above, Lord's Day 23, reads, Our Justification... Now, justification is one of these big words. It's hard for us to always remember what it means. In some ways, you could equate it with salvation. But justification is not just about the fact that we are saved. It's especially about how we are saved. It describes how we, who deserve to come under God's condemnation, are declared not guilty of our sins. The focus of justification is on how Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God. To understand the doctrine of justification, we need to know something about God. One of God's attributes, of his characteristics, is that he is a just God. There's two aspects to God's justice. First, God always and flawlessly knows the difference between right and wrong, between righteousness and wickedness. And second, the Lord upholds justice. He does what is right. He punishes the wicked and he vindicates the upright. The Lord is absolutely committed to doing justice. When the Lord declared his name to Moses, he made clear that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear 
the guilty. So the question that faces us is this. If God is truly a just God, who will not clear the guilty, then how will we find favor in his sight? The problem that faces us is that all human beings are guilty before God. Just before the sermon, we sang from Psalm 143. There David pleaded with the Lord, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Paul made the same point in Romans 3. He said, None is righteous, no, not one. Since all human beings are guilty, it's to be expected that the God of all justice will punish them for their sins. The doctrine of justification is the teaching of God's sovereign grace. It's a teaching about the way in which God absolves us of the punishment that we deserve. It's a teaching that's focused on what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's about how Jesus Christ died in our place to pay the penalty we deserved. And how, as a result, God now looks on us in favor. The doctrine of justification is a delightful teaching. It's the basis for our comfort, our joy, our hope. Fundamentally, it teaches that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I summarize God's word for you this afternoon under the following theme. In Christ, God graciously grants justification to all believers. We'll see the inadequacy of our human condition, the sufficiency of God's grace, and the necessity of true faith. We began the sermon by noting that God is a just God and that he will punish the guilty for their sins. Somewhere deep inside of us, we all have a sense of God's justice and of how we deserve to come under his condemnation. Many people in our society don't want to admit that. Some deny the existence of an afterlife or say that heaven and hell do not exist. Others lie to themselves about who they are. They consider themselves to be good people. They think that because of the good things that they've done in their lives, they deserve to be received by God into heaven. Yet it's striking how fleeting those thoughts and ideas often are when people are confronted by death. In Hebrews 2 verse 15, the writer of Hebrews speaks about people being held in slavery by their fear of death. The Apostle John describes this further in 1 John 4, verses 17 and 18. He explains that this fear has to do with punishment. You see, beloved, God has not only put eternity into the hearts of mankind. Somewhere deep down, we know that after our death, we will have to give account of all we have done 
to the living God of heaven and earth. That thought fills our hearts with fear. For we know we have not lived according to God's righteous decrees. Deep down we know we're sinful people who deserve to come under God's judgment. Now dying is no picnic. It brings us face to face with the brokenness of this life. God never created us to die. He created us to live with him forevermore. The wages of sin is death. Death is a natural consequence of sin. For many people, dying is a difficult process. People are not just confronted by the fact that their life is coming to an end. They're also faced with the question of what happens after I die. I've witnessed godly believers struggle with the approach of death because Satan continued to accuse them of all their sins and their wrongdoings. Even for believers, death is the last enemy. How much worse the fear of death must be for those who do not know the Lord or his grace. On different occasions as pastor, I've been in the palliative care ward when unbelievers die. You would not believe the wailing that came from some of those rooms. People crying out in anguish and sorrow. They grieved as those who had no hope. Death for them was all-encompassing. You can understand why many unbelievers get drunk at a friend or family member's funeral reception. They're confronted with the reality of death, and there's nothing there to provide them with any comfort or hope. Why are so many people afraid of death? Well, ultimately, it's because of our fallen human condition is because we are sinful people who deserve to come under God's judgment and condemnation. During their lives, many in our society are not willing to acknowledge this. Many have an unlimited confidence in human nature, in human goodness. From a young age, our society teaches us that we have within us everything we need to accomplish what we want. As long as we put our minds to it, as long as we give it our best effort, there's many people who believe in the basic goodness of mankind. Beloved, if people are inherently good, why do we witness so much evil all around us? Why have millions of people lost their lives in the wars of this past century? Why did Russia invade Ukraine? Why are there shootings and stabbings in our major Canadian cities on a daily basis? Why are there so many conflicts and fights? Talk to one of our police officers or one of our paramedics and ask them what they think about the idea that people are basically good. They witness the depravity of mankind 
Pretty much every shift they work. Listen to what the Bible has to say about our human condition. The Bible is clear about the fact that we are sinful from birth. In Psalm 51, David wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In Psalm 58, he said, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. We don't need to learn how to sin. It comes quite naturally to us. Our sinful nature produces many sinful actions in our lives. In Job 14, Job writes, who can, blame, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Jeremiah makes a similar point. He asks, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. By nature, we're corrupt. As sinful people, we're not able to change our sinful nature any more than a leopard can change its spots. In Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord evaluated man's condition in the time prior to the flood. Moses writes, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord Jesus made a similar point in Matthew 15, verse 19. He said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The sins we do come from the sinful condition of our heart. Beloved, are you aware of your sins? Or do you turn a blind eye to them and think that you're basically a pretty good person? In our Reformed Confessions, we say that by nature, we are totally corrupt. But in our individual lives, we often have times when we think we're doing pretty well. When we have a much more positive perspective on ourselves. Our nature is such that we're inclined to pride. We like to brag about our accomplishments, to feel good about our successes. But the problem is, if we don't know that we are sinful people, we're never going to look to God for his grace. When Lord's Day 23 talks about our justification, about how we are righteous before God, it begins by noting our sinfulness. It does so by making reference to our conscience. It says, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God. And then it goes on to talk about God's grace. My question to you this afternoon is this. Does your conscience accuse you of your sins? Are you aware of the many and different ways in which you offend God with wrong thoughts and attitudes, words and deeds? Our conscience is a self-observing, self-judging capacity 
that enables us to judge our actions, words, thoughts, and feelings. It's like an inner voice that speaks up, telling us the difference between what's right and wrong. Our conscience can warn us not to do something that we're considering because it is wrong. It can also accuse us when we've done something wrong, giving us an uncomfortable, an anxious, a guilty feeling. So what happens within you when you sin? Are you comfortable doing so? See, beloved, it's possible for us to put our conscience to sleep. We can push away that nagging thought that what we're doing is wrong. We can try and silence that inner voice so we can go ahead and do what we want to do. If we repeatedly sin in a specific way, we can sear our conscience. By stifling its warnings, we can reach the point where our conscience no longer bothers us when we commit certain sins. Yeah, beloved, for most of us, our conscience is actually a positive force in our lives. It warns us not to sin. It accuses us when we do. Our conscience alerts us to the fact that our sins affect our relationship with God. It accuses us of the fact that God is not happy with us. It reminds us that Our sins cause brokenness in our relationship with the Lord. One of the reasons God has given us a conscience is to cause us to seek forgiveness for our sins. It's to drive us to confess our sins so that we may be reconciled to God. Ultimately, our conscience drives us to the cross of Christ. For it's only in Him that we can be restored in our relationship with God. Brings us to our second point, and it will see the sufficiency of God's grace. Just as the Bible talks about how we are sinful by nature and cannot do anything to save ourselves, so it also speaks about how it is God who saves by grace alone. We cannot earn or merit God's favor through our good works. God grants us his grace through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul writes about this in Romans 3. He makes it clear that no one is righteous. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of our sins. In verse 21, Paul writes, But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Paul further explains this in verses 24 and 25. He says that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Let me explain that. God has made known the way of righteousness. He has revealed to us the way that we are justified. It's through His grace in Christ. 
We need to remember, beloved, that God is a just God. He's absolutely committed to doing justice. Part of his justice is that he will punish sin. Earlier we saw that because of our sins, we deserve to come under God's judgment and condemnation. And so the question arises, how can we escape God's just judgment? Our catechism teaches us that it is in Christ that we are made righteous before God. I want to stress the importance of those words, in Christ. There's no way that we could appear before God's judgment seat on our own and be declared not guilty of our sins. The doctrine of justification is about how Christ stood up in our place as our substitute. He was willing to die on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The reason why God can find us not guilty is because Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sins. The writer of the Hebrews addresses this matter in chapter 12. He compares the work of the priests of the Old Covenant to the work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, priests offered sacrifices day after day. They were meant to atone for the people's sins, but they could never truly pay for sin. In effect, all these sacrifices did was point forward to the coming Messiah who would truly save us from our sins. Christ offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. By that sacrifice, he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The writer of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah 31 to make clear the effect of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Because of it, God says, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. When God forgives our sins, they are truly forgiven. God no longer holds them against us. He will not punish us for our sins because Jesus Christ has borne the punishment that we deserved. We see that the Lord Jesus came into this world as a sin offering. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 that we were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter explains the way of redemption in 1 Peter 3.18. He says that Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Beloved, when we have repented of our sins and confessed them before God, He forgives. And when God forgives, the slate is wiped clean. Our catechism expresses beautifully how we are made into a new creation. It says that God grants Christ's righteousness and holiness to me as if I had never had nor committed any sins 
and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. When God looks at us, it's as if we had never sinned. It's as if we had lived our lives in perfect obedience to the will of God. Having been justified, made righteous by Christ, God views us as people who've never sinned against him. This, beloved, changes our perspective on who we are. We know that by nature we're sinful people deserving to come under God's wrath. Yet by God's grace, he has allowed us to share in Christ and all his benefits. When we put on Christ, we're transformed. In Christ, we're no longer guilty but forgiven. In Christ, God considers us to be righteous and holy. Because God looks at us that way, we also may view ourselves as redeemed saints, as God's beloved children. This has great impact on our lives. See, beloved, we no longer need to live in fear. Earlier we spoke about how many people in society around us are consumed by a fear of death. As a society, we do all we can to push the reality of death far from us. Insurance agents sell us what they call life insurance. Although in reality, it provides a benefit for our loved ones when we die. People push death away by having sick loved ones die in hospital rather than at home, by hiring a funeral director to make the arrangements rather than preparing the body for burial themselves. And the Bible speaks about how Jesus Christ has set us free from the fear of death. Hebrews 2.15 speaks about how Christ shared in our human nature that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In 1 John 4, 17, John speaks about how we can have confidence on the day of judgment. It's the love of God in Jesus Christ that helps to banish all fear of judgment. Thus we see how God's grace in Christ assures us we are no longer under God's judgment and condemnation. It brings us to our final point, and it will see the necessity of faith. Through his grace in Christ, God gives his people an indescribably rich gift, righteousness in Christ. The result is that instead of being condemned to hell, our sins are forgiven us, and we are heirs of life everlasting. But how do we make this gift our own? Our catechism summarizes the Bible's answer. 
It says, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, God's work of grace in Jesus Christ does not apply to all people. God does not declare all people not guilty when they appear before his throne. Not everyone is justified. Why not? Because there are many who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. There are many who, having heard the good news of salvation, reject it. There are many who cannot accept salvation as a free gift, who think that they can merit or earn favor with God through their own good works. But there's only one way to be saved, by true faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. John teaches us this clearly in John 3, 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thus we see that while our justification is given to us by God in his grace, we need to appropriate it through faith. We can receive the rich gift of grace that God grants it and make it our own by faith only. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes the need for a living faith in Jesus Christ. He speaks about how Christ has opened the way to God for us through his flesh offered on the cross. And then he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are to draw near to God. It's a call to live in intimate fellowship with God our Father. We're called to come to Him with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart is a sincere heart one devoted to God and reliant on Him. The writer of Hebrews contrasts true faith with a lack of faith in the verses that follow. He writes, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Saying that you have faith, is not the same thing as living in faith. If you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will submit your heart and life to Him. You'll trust in Him to provide all your needs. You'll acknowledge that God's way and not your own way is best for your life. You'll be willing to submit to God's good commandments instead of walking in sinful ways. You see, beloved, faith which doesn't love God and His Son, Jesus Christ, isn't faith. Faith which is inactive isn't faith. Faith which continues on in deliberate sin isn't faith. 
Faith which doesn't produce good fruit isn't faith. Faith which thinks only about me and my desires isn't faith. Faith that doesn't trust in God isn't faith. Don't deceive yourself by thinking that you have faith and that you share in Christ's righteousness if you do not have a living and active faith. Now you might be wondering, why is our pastor making such a big point about the need for a living faith? It's because there's times when we live in smug complacency. So easy for us to adopt the attitude that we are God's children and that he loves us, and that anyone who's a church member will be saved. It's easy to buy into a sermon about how we're justified by grace alone, and to think that it's of little consequence how we live our lives. It's easy to claim forgiveness of our sins in the blood of Christ while living in unrepentant sin. The doctrine of justification has often been called the heart of the Reformed faith. It is an incredibly great treasure. Just think about how Jesus Christ was willing to suffer and die in your place. How Jesus bore God's infinite wrath to pay for all your sins. How God in Christ is willing to declare all his children not guilty of their sins, to grant them freedom and life, now and forevermore. Those are glorious riches, which God has made available to us all. If only we take hold of them by faith. If only we truly believe the gospel and live out of it. And so, beloved, the call of the gospel goes out to you again this afternoon. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together from Psalm 130, stanzas 2 and 4. Mm -hmm. 